Welcome to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me with me, Raymond Nakamura. And me, Carolyn Nakagawa. Well, Carolyn, today we're going to talk about Cumberland. Have you ever been to Cumberland? I have not, but I feel like I've been hearing about it for a while. And I feel like even in this podcast, we've been talking around it a few times because we talked about Aiko Saita, who's from Cumberland. Uh huh. And then last episode, we talked about Nikkei place names, including Nikkei Mountain in Cumberland. Right, right. Yeah, there was that. Uh, for myself, my grandfather on my mother's side uh, first came to Canada, worked at a store at Cumberland. He wasn't oh, a yeah. miner, even oh. though Cumberland is known for its mining. Right. He wasn't a miner. He was working in a store. And perhaps the most important legacy is the Cumberland Chowmen. I, I used to <laughs> like that. My I'm not sure where my mom learned it from, but uh, we used to have it as well. Wait, so what is Cumberland Chowmen? I've seen different versions, but one of the descriptions that I've heard is that it includes a different kind of noodle okay. rather than the brown noodle. It's more of a white noodle. That's how I sort of think of okay. it. And then the ingredients is being described as very basic ingredients that they could get and grow in that area. Oh, so, so it was like uh, a hundred celery, mile diet. So, well, I don't know about <laughs> But yeah, well, partly there was that. And Chuck Tasaka had written about that as mm-hmm. well as another fellow, who Russell Sakoe in mm-hmm. the bulletin, uh, both of them talking about their experiences with Cumberland Chowmen. Yeah, it's quite famous and well-loved as a dish. And I think Chuck Tasaka referred to a version later on where they were making their own noodles in Greenwood using the flour right. water mm-hmm. that had a legacy of that. So there were the Japanese there, and then there was a Chinatown. And mm-hmm. supposedly there was a Chinese restaurant, and the leader of that kind of recruited Japanese Canadian women to be working in the restaurant, and they learned oh. how to make this chowmen through that. That that was one story that I read, although Mm. another story I heard was some animosity between Mm. the Chinese and the Japanese, which is perhaps typical. But as a boy, one of them was talking about avoiding Chinatown altogether. Mm. So this is an interesting potential bridge. Right. Well, I mean, I feel like there's a very well-established tradition of Japanese Canadians and Chinese restaurants. If you think about Fuji Chop Suey, it was such a well-known place on Powell Street before the war. Right. And even now, I know my family, whenever we go to the temple or even the crematorium for a funeral or obon service or anything, we always go for Chinese food afterwards. Hmm. That's interesting. I didn't know that was Really? You don't do that? I thought all the Japanese Canadians here did that. Because even someone who wasn't Nikkei observed yeah. to me once, that he went to a funeral for someone. And then afterwards, they all went for dim sum. And he thought that was really strange. And I was like, hmm. well, oh, everybody uh, does that. My wife's family is Chinese. Mm-hmm. And so we have gone to Chinese food right. after a funeral after, on a, that side. For a Chinese funeral. But yeah. yeah. And then their tradition is not to have meat oh. during that meal. Oh, no, we, we I don't want to think too much about the implications <laughs> otherwise. But in any case, back to Cumberland and the beginnings of Cumberland. Oh, yes. So apparently it was founded in 1808 by Robert Dunsmuir, the coal baron, who I guess is the namesake for Dunsmuir Street in downtown Vancouver. Right. Um, I think he built the Craig Derrick Castle in Victoria. Oh, boy. Yeah. Probably. Like he was a rich guy. He yeah. was a rich guy, and he had a big role in the early BC history because he was such a huge captain of industry. And then coal being such an important fuel yeah. back then. Now yes. it's sort of vilified. Because of Dunsmuir, well, no, no, but with the carbon emissions and oh, so Oh, yes, forth. the environmental yeah. impact as well yeah. as the but, labor but issues it being from a, that time. an important fuel mm-hmm. for right. everything. Yeah, and so back then, someone who made their business extracting coal could found a town. 
Mm-hmm. Well, because also because it's so based on natural resources, and you have to found a town where the coal is. Right. And, and it I, was originally named Union after, uh-huh. I guess, his company was the Union Coal Company. Mm-hmm. But they, then, they use the term colliery. I think that's colliery the, is like a coal. Yeah, something with company. Coal. Yeah, sounds like a dog. Uh, So the first Japanese miners, I understood, came in 1891. Yeah, and it sounds like Dutzmere actually paid for their passage. So he was very directly involved in actively recruiting people, which is maybe how Cumberland got so multicultural. It's kind of ironic because the name Cumberland was changed from Union in 1898, so already Japanese miners were there. Mm -hmm. And that's named after the famous English coal mining district of Cumberland, England. And I think they also started naming a lot of the streets after different places tied to Cumberland in England. But it's such a multicultural place because it had the fifth largest Chinese settlement in British Columbia. It also had a black community, a lot of them mostly, I think, from the United States. And there are also several other communities from European immigrants, mm-hmm. um, including Italians, Yugoslavian. Uh, the book that I read said Yugoslavian, but I think they're actually Croatian mainly, oh. as well as Hungarian communities. So there's a real mix of... Well, I don't know about how mixed they were, because yes. they had those separate towns, right? There was right. the number one Japan town based at the number yeah. one mine, yeah. and then there was the number five yes. Japan town. And I don't know what numbers two, three, and four were, but I guess they were probably other groups like Chinese or Hungarian or other communities. Yeah, we tend to have our particular focus. So they had Mm -hmm. their different areas. And this was not unusual by any means. You know, in fishing communities, they also divided up along cultural background. But it is interesting that in Cumberland, they actually had separate designated towns, which I've never heard of for any other Mm. place. And probably Mm. true to certain degrees, but even the fact that they could identify that Japanese settlements were number one, number five. Mm -hmm. And the racial segregation, it sounds like, was very strong. And it wasn't, of course, that he was trying to be multicultural. One of the things that he could pay them more cheaply than the white workers. Right. Uh, Uh, I found some numbers, actually. So I think this was sort of the early part of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. White workers were paid $3.30 a day, and Japanese workers were paid $1.40. Oh, dollar um, forty. I had even less at a dollar twenty-five a day. Well, I mean, the wages changed. Yeah, the yeah, time yeah. Over time, right? right. Um, right. The later, so one forty versus three thirty. That's less than half. Yeah. But then later, wages increased. So for whites, they increased to five dollars, and for Japanese miners, it was one sixty-five. So it actually, the gap increased in that time period. Uh huh. And some of the issues, labor issues that they had, were white miners being concerned about being. Undermined. I don't know if I should say that. Yeah, but because they felt there was unfair competition of being right. paid so cheaply that they were right. out of work. So then the coal miner bosses, so Dunsmuir and his associates, were underpaying the Asian workers as both Chinese and Japanese immigrants. And then using that to sort of divert attention off of them and blaming the Asian workers for working for less, even though they are the ones that pay them less. Right. So the Chinese and Japanese immigrants became scapegoats for the labor issues, unfortunately. Uh, So I actually looked into the Cumberland general strike of 1912 to 1914. Can you imagine a strike that goes on for two years? Mm. But it seems that it started when a group of miners declared themselves on holidays, which is kind of a nice way to put it. (laughs) And for the first 30 days, it's both the white miners and Chinese miners refused to work or sign the individual contract that the mining company wanted them to sign. 
which was a two-year contract, and split them up and didn't allow them to use collective bargaining strategies. And I'm assuming that the Japanese were probably in there as well. The source that I was reading just said Chinese. So, and then after I think a few days or a few weeks, twelve special provincial policemen blocked white miners from entering Chinatown and Japantown. And the next day, the Orientals agreed to sign the individual contract. So, so, what was the sense of why they were being blocked? I guess the、Stop、idea、trouble? was that the white workers were the ones who were leading the sort of collective movement, and、oh, yeah. so they wanted to sort of divide and conquer. And the source that I read was speculating that the Chinese workers—they only talk specifically about Chinese. So、mm-hmm. I'm kind of guessing that Japanese workers were having the same thing sold to them—that they were threatened with deportation. If you can imagine that some of these people have had their passage paid by the company. Hmm. Even they were living on company land, right? This was a company town,、hmm. so their houses were owned by the company. The utilities were provided by the company, and they were in debt to the company for all those things. Oh, that's interesting. So it's that's, very vulnerable that's, position. That's the way the fishing companies worked as well.、Mm-hmm. And when they had strikes, actually around those sort of earlier turn of the century time periods, is that similarly the Japanese were renting their accommodation, and so they couldn't afford to go on strike. So there was、mm-hmm. this tension. Because of their different motivations. Yeah. So just like that extra level of vulnerability, especially with having the lower wages, yeah, made them more vulnerable and made them, in most cases, made them become strike breakers.、Mm, right. So that strike ended up、uh, ending just mainly because, well, one, the union stopped being able to issue strike pay after over a year. Then it was 1914, so World War One started, and they really needed to up coal production again. Ah,、uh-huh, so there's a demand for that.、Mm-hmm. It seems that yeah, there were tensions all the way through, and, and the beginnings of the Japanese coming too back in the 1891 period. I just、mm-hmm. wanted to go back to that briefly. I understood that the consulate, the Japanese consulate, was concerned about the working conditions、really? initially,、oh. and they came to check things out. So that the initial influx of Japanese, they ended up canceling their contract because of that. Really, the first start, yeah. So then later on in 1892, then there was another attempt to bring miners over, and then、so、an attempt to at least on paper improve the conditions. I guess so. They came to an agreement, but then there was another general strike at that time,、mm. which nullified that. So、yeah. there were a couple of difficult starts at the beginning, but、right. eventually they became entrenched and were、yeah. able to stay there. Yeah, but the Japanese government was involved in the community in Cumberland, even though you think of it as this very remote, small place. In 1918, the community finished building a language school, and they asked the Japanese government to send them a teacher. So there was a couple of the Aokis who were sent from Japan on a three-year contract by the Japanese government to run this language school for the children of Cumberland. So you see, the government was supporting this almost on an active level. Even though it was this very small, remote resource town. Well, they had the most Japanese on Vancouver Island,、oh, even,、yeah. even more than Victoria. So that's interesting in itself that it was、mm-hmm. substantial in that way. And resource industries, Japanese were involved in all over the province, partly because of restrictions. Well, probably largely because、right. of restrictions. Well, also because that was the real draw to bring them to Canada was that, especially the West Coast, there were so much resources in terms of fish. Coal, lumber, and potential for farming—that、right. was really the thing that Japan lacked. That they could come to Canada and take advantage of.、Mm-hmm. And even in Cumberland, there were periods where the coal mining was not the most profitable, and/or I don't know, labor disputes and other things made it not desirable.、Uh-huh. So people started to get involved in other things, and Japanese immigrants were often involved in lumber as well around Cumberland. 
That in particular was interesting. I thought the Royston Lumber Company. Yeah, because it was owned by a syndicate of Japanese immigrants of Issei. Yeah, that's such an interesting idea that they had that idea, and partly it seems it was related to a provincial law that prevented the employment of Chinese or Japanese on Crown timberlands. So that they、really? bought, yeah, so they bought private land, so that and then could, they could log it, yeah, themselves.、Right. So it was a way of getting around that creative solution.、Mm-hmm. There is also the Kagetsu logging camp, which was funded by a Tokyo-controlled syndicate, but was, I think, headed by the Kagetsu. Syndicate、AGT. always sounds kind of ominous to me, but I guess that, that sort of yeah, I don't know. It's cooperative、yeah. business venture, right? Right. But I find it interesting that even in the Kagetsu logging camp, the Japanese immigrants worked at jobs requiring lesser skill. And white foremen operated locomotives or acted as woods boss to produce logs, and、mm. they would export those logs to the Asian market. So even in that place where it was run for Japan and also run by Japanese management, there was still that stratification, and still the whites getting the more privileged jobs.、Mm. So I wonder if that's it's probably just a replication of what was already happening and what people were already trained to do. In terms of workers at other camps, that they would come knowing how. Oh to yeah,、them. yeah, standardized yeah. methods. Standard Although、out. I did read somewhere that、uh, Orientals were not allowed. He's saying the word Orientals and then feeling wrong about it, but it's because of the, that's the way that they're right. The language at that time. Yes, that's right. So Chinese and Japanese immigrants were not、mm-hmm. allowed to use explosives. So that was usually a job designated to the Italian immigrants, for some reason.、Hmm. In general, just Caucasians. But specifically, it was often the Italians. So it might also have been a licensing issue or some kind of regulation that barred them from using higher-level equipment as well. They had also been restricted in the mining area, Chinese and Japanese.、Mm-hmm. They were restricted from going in there. But then Dunsmuir simply ignored that law. Apparently. Okay, so that's how they ended up mining. Yeah. Because we talked about that before, how it seemed like they had been legally barred from it, but we know that they did mine. Yeah, they were just defying the law, and the law had come about because white miners protesting the lower wages. Right. So there was that. They wanted、process. to keep the most dangerous jobs for themselves <laughs> to make more money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing that Japanese immigrants ended up getting involved in, as you mentioned before, Raymond, is business.、Mm-hmm. Uh, local businesses to support the resource town of Cumberland. And I thought it was interesting that because Japanese immigrants were more likely to actually leave the main industry of coal and get involved in service positions and businesses, they were a little bit more integrated into the community as a whole or other parts of the community because they had to learn. Language,、mm-hmm. and they had to learn certain things about cultural customs. Right. So the white community in Cumberland was more comfortable with the Japanese immigrants、hmm. overall because there was a little bit more interaction. Some examples of people that they had met. They met, they had talked to, and there was this requirement because of their businesses that they would learn a bit more about the customs and culture, and language, and that sort of bridged the gap a bit more. Right. And also the fact that Japanese immigrants would send for their families and bring them over.、Mm-hmm. If you look at the photos, there's quite a few photos of Cumberland settlers,、mm-hmm. um, including many Japanese and Chinese immigrants. The Japanese photos are usually of families,、mm-hmm. and they're and, usually and the, dressed in Western. Clothes. Yes, that's right. The Western clothes is very conspicuous. And speaking of the photos, very Edwardian too. Oh like, yeah, very, some of the mustaches that the men yes, have. Yes, it's very of the style of the period,、yes. and so it's very interesting to see these Asian families with their stiff, starched clothing. Now, speaking of photos, this is an interesting thing about the Cumberland archives. They have all these photos that were apparently 
retrieved in the 1980s. From garage sales. From garage sales. But they're glass negatives that had been taken long before that. And there's this history of a photo studio, which was in Cumberland. Mm -hmm. And as you say, as a service to the broader population as well. Maybe just mentioning a few of them. There's the one who started it. His name was Senjiro Hayashi. Right. So there were a few different owners for the studio, but it was always a Japanese-owned photo Mm -hmm. studio, Mm -hmm. which is maybe why you see such a diverse population of subjects in the photos. Oh, they had different connections subsequently. Right. Like you don't expect to see so many historical photographs of um, Asian immigrants because they were the laborers. But Mm -hmm. there's quite a wealth of them Mm -hmm. because he was tied into that community. And this collection was an inspiration to the exhibition that took place here called Shushing about Japanese Canadian photographers. So the, right. the Cumberland collection was a starting point for right. that, that uh, Grace Aiko Thompson had developed. Right. And I believe that even now the Cumberland Museum puts those on display uh-huh. quite regularly. I saw a posting about how I had gone to Japan as well. Oh, really? Some of the photographs developed from that time. But the last one who was working in the photo studio seemed to be quite an interesting character. Oh, Matsubuchi? Yes, Matsubuchi I had, but he was a sumo wrestler. Mm-hmm. In addition to being a photographer and other things, even though he was five feet tall, they said he could hoist a 500-pound bag of rice on his back. <laughs> I don't know if that's part of his training or something. So you can imagine those big cameras, maybe he was able to carry them around like instantly. Yeah, more of an athletic job than it is now. He actually was the one, I think, who got a contract from the government in 1941 to take photos for registration cards. Right, of the, the people who are in Cumberland. the yes. population in Cumberland, because by that time, the photo studio had closed down. I think mm-hmm. it closed down once before in the 30s, and then mm-hmm. late, later in the 30s again, it had to close down due to economic conditions. But the government had him reopen it specifically to take those registration card photographs. So there have been a number of efforts in more recent times to commemorate the history of Japanese Canadians in Cumberland. Right, and we talked about Nikkei Mountain last time uh-huh. as one example. And there is the ground, the Coal Creek Historical Park, which includes the number one Japantown mm-hmm. and the Japanese cemetery, which some volunteers had cleaned up. Right, because it was desecrated in the 1940s after the community left. Mm-hmm. And I saw some pictures of it that showed the headstones some of them were in Japanese and some of them were in English. So it was interesting that there was still that aspect of the community where some were more westernized than others in right. terms of their traditions. Right. Well, we're still talking about the Issei and Nisei at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mm-hmm. divide. For but sure. this park, in 2009, they planted 31 cherry trees to commemorate the 31 families that mm. were in the number one mm-hmm. town at the time of the forced removal in 1942. Yeah. Now, the number five Japantown site doesn't have this same recognition, but I understand that they're working on finding more background information and support mm-hmm. for them. Right. I think there was only one family that returned to Cumberland after the restrictions were lifted in 49. Mm. So it's a challenge for a village to do that when they don't have that direct connection anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that they do, that they have been working hard for it. Actually, one of their mayors received an Order of the Rising Sun for his work. Right. He was the one involved yeah. in getting the Nikkei Mountain yes. name. Yes. Was his name William Moncrief? I think that's right. But if you think about what a small place Cumberland was at that time... 
the 500, 600 Japanese Canadians who were removed from Cumberland was a significant part of the population. It was one fourteenth of the whole district from one calculation. And that included a third of the students of the elementary school Hmm. were just gone Mm -hmm. after they were forced to leave. And 38.8% of the students in Cumberland High School. So you can imagine that would have had a very measurable impact on the community when they were forced to leave. Even though some of that racism was coming directly from Cumberland, for sure, because one of the most outspoken anti-Asian politicians, A.W. Neal, was a representative for Cumberland. Oh. And he was the one who proposed a bill in 1938 to exclude Japanese immigrants from Canada. Oh, completely. So that was following the initial volunteer limitation of how many were coming into the country. Oh, that was well after the yeah. Gentlemen's Agreement, which was in the right. early part of the 20th century. So, so, but that was sort of the culmination of that general decrease. There right. was a shrinking of how many were coming yeah. over time. I remember, yeah, there were two MPs who were particularly outspoken in BC against, I think, Asians in general, mm-hmm. but particularly Japanese immigrants. And I guess one of them was from more Vancouver area. And A.W. Neal was actually a representative for the Cumberland area. And that same year that he proposed that bill, the manager of Royston Lumber, Mr. Uchiyama, wrote a letter, an open letter to the newspaper, denying rumors that he had firearms and maps of local navigable waters. Mm. So someone had been spreading those rumors that he was engaged in some sort of espionage-type activity. Mm. So you see that even though it's a past that's now celebrated in Cumberland, Mm -hmm. the multicultural past, it really... Like you said, it very much wasn't the utopia (laughs) because of all that diversity Mm -hmm. in the time. There was an aspect of it, though, where they were integrated, or at least on the same side during World War I. And they had some veterans, or they had people who went over uh, to fight in World War I. Yeah, there were some Nikkei Cumberland First World War veterans. mm -hmm. There's a photo of a commemoration in the cemetery, and apparently there was an arch that was made by the Great War Veterans Association. Mm -hmm. And this memorial arch did include some Nikkei members as well. So I suppose that was an example of when it suited them, there was common purpose. And it might also be a generational thing. I mean, you hear stories about people who grew up in East Vancouver Mm -hmm. in the Strathcona area, which is very multicultural. And I had a Caucasian woman come up to me a little while ago and she said, oh, I grew up in Strathcona, probably in the 30s or 40s. And Mm -hmm. when any of my parents' friends wanted to get something at the Japanese store, they just borrow me and I go and translate for them because she said they all spoke seven languages so that they could play (laughs) with all their friends. So I wonder if you think about the elementary school in Cumberland being a third Japanese Canadian children. Right. There might have been more mixture there. And now the people who are elders nowadays in Cumberland and anywhere else are the generation that were children. Yes, yes. And then had they friends who they played with. That's right, yeah. So there being the common school, it was interesting that they had to go to the regular school where they mixed with right. people from other areas. Because right. the Japanese school was after school and on Saturdays. And it was a full curriculum. So yeah. they were basically going to two different schools. But yeah. they did go to the public school. Right, where they were meeting the other people. Although that's not to say that there wasn't racism there Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. I think I heard a story, actually, Harry Aoki, one of the Aoki's children, said that his first day of school, a little girl called him a Jap and spat on him. And he had to run home and say, what's a Jap? Because he didn't know before he went to school, right? Mm. So that's where the children would have discovered racism. Yeah. But also, in some cases, they might have been overcoming it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an interesting effort to recognize the past, as you say, without necessarily making it look all rosy, Mm -hmm. but to 
was what we're trying to do here when we're looking at it and trying to think about what it was actually like mm-hmm. to be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the efforts to have a commemoration at mm-hmm. Cumberland, I think that that's a really nice example of being able to recognize the past and move forward with building a right. community. And they do have a very valuable archive of photographs that are beautiful studio portraits of not just Japanese immigrants, but also Chinese immigrants and other miners who immigrated from other parts of the world. And those were painstakingly salvaged, it sounds like, from some community members who just went around different garage sales in the 1980s when they started showing up and just collected all these negatives. Mm-hmm. And now the photo collection at the Cumberland Museum has over 700 last plate negatives. So that's a mark of a real effort on the part of community members mm-hmm. to preserve and honor this really unique history. So I'd encourage any listeners to go and check out the Cumberland archives. Yeah, they're all online. There's an amazing Flickr website that you can look at all the photos in. That sounds good. Sounds Japanese-Canadian to me. And me. Mm-hmm.